Their names are a byword for romance on the run. A fairy tale story of star-crossed outlaws who will ride together and die together. Bonnie and Clyde are American legends, a wild couple who outgun and outpace the cops. For a few short years, they capture public imagination with their high-octane life of crime that stops only for gas and ammo. Forged in the intense heat of the dusty Midwest and the Great Depression, molded by a brutal prison system, their car-crazy machine-gun crime spree can only ever end one way. But what's the truth behind their glamorous image? How did they become notorious celebrities in their own lifetime? This is Bonnie and Clyde Part 1, Star-Crossed Lovers. It's January 1930. Soft jazz drifts into the cool evening air from the open window of a shack in West Dallas. A man in a dark suit mounts the few steps to the door. The turnips of his pants are splashed with mud from the unpaved streets. He shifts a brown paper bag into one hand, knocks at the door, then turns the handle to step inside. The home's occupant doesn't get up. She's broken her arm and is resting on the couch. The man puts the bag down on a sideboard next to the wireless and takes off his hat. He grins wide, smoothing his slick, dark hair back with his hand. Clyde Chestnut Barrow is 20 years old, though his short stature makes him look much younger. And despite the dopey grin plastered on his fresh face, Clyde is no boy. He's been a gang member for years and been busted for everything from chicken theft to auto theft. Clyde nods at the bag, telling his friend he's bought her some fruit. She laughs, knowing it's either stolen or bought with dirty money. Nothing's straight in this neighborhood. He looks around the room and asks if any chores need doing. She nods towards the kitchen, telling him he's too late. Her sister-in-law is already here, having moved in temporarily to help out. Clyde grabs the bag and carries it into the kitchen out back. The sweet scent of chocolate wafts from a bubbling pot on the stove. His friend's sister-in-law is sitting at the table. The young woman is small and slight and looks out over the yard towards the bright lights of Dallas beyond. Clyde doesn't pay her much attention, dropping the bag on the counter and giving the chocolate a stir. The young woman turns to rebuke Clyde. He laughs, lifting the spoon to his mouth, then pauses, spoon hovering close to his lips. The young woman stands, one hand on her hip, hat pushed back on her head. Less than five feet tall, She's still every inch a movie star, framed with the neon city lights behind her. Her face cracks a smile. She takes the spoon from Clyde and leans back on the counter, introducing herself as Bonnie Parker. Neither of them know it yet, but they have each just found their ride-or-die partner in crime. 
The fateful meeting will affect both their destinies, and their exploits together will echo down the years long after they're gone. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. Bonnie and Clyde's chance meeting will prove fateful for both of them. In lives framed by poverty and hardship, a few rash decisions will set them on a collision course with the law. But their story of doomed love and desire and the fact they pen it themselves will soon capture the hearts of the nation. You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Calico is a tiny farming community south of Dallas, Texas, with just a handful of inhabitants. On March 24, 1909, a new resident is born. The fifth of seven children born to Kimmy and Henry Barrow, Clyde Chestnut Barrow's prospects are limited in the dusty landscape. Paul Schneider is a journalist and author of Bonnie and Clyde, The Lives Behind the Legend. The Barrows were part of a larger migration of displaced, poor, white farmers after the Civil War. You know, they obviously were much better off than African-Americans or Chinese railroad laborers. But to be a kind of itinerant sharecropper was about the bottom of the barrel for Anglo-Americans. People lived really hand to mouth bare bones. Clyde Barrow was born in sort of a tar paper shack or not much more than that on one of these sharecropper farms. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glaze windows? 
we owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. America is still gripped by the aftermath of war. Cotton and food prices are plummeting. Rural farmers are forced into cities for work. The barrows cling on, but in the early 20s, drought adds a new challenge. The family makes a fateful decision. Like many, many other poor white sharecroppers, they ended up going to the city. And so when Clyde was very young, the family showed up in Dallas basically with a wagon and a horse and started living under this viaduct in a kind of squatter's camp. Under this viaduct, which is this long kind of bridge that goes over the Trinity River. For a few months, the entire family lives in the mud beneath their wagon. They then upgrade when the family moves into a tent. The Barrows work any job they can to get out from under the viaduct. Finally, Henry Barrow manages to scrape together enough cash to buy a cheap nearby gas station. The family moves into one small room in the back. It's another upgrade, but this neighborhood isn't known as the devil's back porch for nothing. The rutted dirt roads are prone to flooding. There's little running water and no sewers. It's a slum on the edge of the city for people on the edge of society. Clyde is a good-natured boy, small and handsome. He loves westerns and idolizes the famous outlaw cowboy Jesse James. At school, he learns the saxophone and guitar and dreams of becoming a musician. But the devil's back porch is a fertile breeding ground for criminals. It really was a kind of land unto itself, its own kind of by its own rules, pretty much operated by gangs and smaller gangs outside the purview really of the sort of downtown Dallas. There were hundreds of little gangs and some of them stole bicycles and some of them stole ice cream, you know, but it was a lawless place. It's not long before Clyde drops out of school to follow his older brother Buck into petty crime. Buck Barrow is obsessed with cockfighting, but has no bird of his own. Rumor has it Clyde's first crime is helping his older brother steal a rooster. But Buck's main racket is car theft. And before long, the two are stealing cars across the city. His own sister said Clyde's biggest problem was that he was desperately ashamed of being poor. So he has this class issue that comes from coming into the Big D, seeing all the wealth and the new cars. Clyde's first arrest comes in 1926 at age 17, when he fails to return a rental car, then uses it to escape from the police. Soon after, he's arrested for stealing a truckload of frozen turkeys. But Buck takes the rap. His brother spends a week inside, but now Clyde is on the cops' radar. He tries a few jobs, 
but they're tough to hold down when you're known as a troublemaker. The way the police worked in Dallas, by their own admission, was they had a list of people that they rounded up for every crime that got committed. So if a bike got stolen under the viaduct, you know, eventually Clyde's just on this list who gets hauled in for questioning. And they were allowed to haul people in for questioning and put them in jail for 72 hours without even telling them what they're asking about. And there are cases where they would then let you out after 72 hours and say, go home and pick you up on your way home and put you back in for another 72 hours without charging you. This is also the era of prohibition. But while the rich can continue to drink and gamble in comfort, the poor drink illicit moonshine in the woods, hounded by police. The government don't seem to be on the side of working class people. It's unsurprising that among the poorer communities, there's disdain for the law. In late 1929, the Roaring Twenties slams to an abrupt halt. A colossal stock market crash triggers the Great Depression, which devastates America. As the Depression bites, the class divide widens. Jobs are scarce, and holding one down is impossible when you're hauled in for questioning every other day. But it's not all gloom. In the midst of the chaos, the 20-year-old Clyde Barrow finds a light. In January 1930, Clyde visits the home of his friend's younger sister, who's recently broken her arm. In the kitchen, he meets 19-year-old Bonnie Parker. Over a pot of hot chocolate, their fates are sealed. Their friend says it's love at first sight. Whether true or not, the chance meeting will change both of their lives dramatically. Born in Rowena, Texas in October 1910, Bonnie Elizabeth Parker has lived in the tough cement city neighborhood of Dallas for several years. Bonnie's prospects on paper or, you know, on the surface were better than Clyde's in the earliest years of her life when her father was alive and they lived way out in West Texas and he was a bricklayer. But he dies when she's relatively young and her mother brings Bonnie and her sister back to Dallas. And Bonnie is no longer kind of on the path of stability and perhaps progress towards some kind of middle class existence. Nevertheless, Bonnie excels at school. She's a bright student, high-spirited and kind-hearted, with a keen interest in poetry. She's determined to make the most of her life, dreaming of becoming an actress. Things take a turn when, at 15, she becomes infatuated with an older kid named Roy Thornton. Six days before her 16th birthday, the pair are married. But if she hopes this will provide stability, she's mistaken. So she marries Roy Thornton at a pretty young age, and he's kind of a ne'er-do-well. He's a burglar, basically, or a safe cracker. And so she's starting to travel around in a crowd of people who are breaking and entering and doing petty crimes. Roy is frequently absent, and when he is around, he's physically abusive. Their marriage is already disintegrating when, in 1929, Roy is sentenced to five years in prison. 
Bonnie will never see her husband again. Bonnie loses her job at a cafe in town and is at a low ebb when she meets Clyde. The two are instantly inseparable. They even have pet names for each other, much to the amusement of their friends. However, the whirlwind romance is short-lived. Just weeks after meeting, Clyde is convicted of auto theft. This time, it's jail. But the impulsive young man has no intention of serving time. Instead, he makes a fateful decision for both of them. The first time Clyde winds up in jail, it's in kind of a small county jail, and he's in there with a couple of buddies, and they figure they can get out if they can get a gun. Clyde convinces Bonnie to sneak into one of the other fellows' home and get this gun and bring it in and get it to them. It's really Bonnie's first probably serious crime. Thanks to a map, Bonnie retrieves a gun from the home of Clyde's cellmate. She successfully smuggles it into jail under her clothes and into Clyde's waiting hands. The next night, thanks to threats delivered from a pistol barrel, Clyde and his friends escape into the darkness, stealing a car and driving over 800 miles all the way to Illinois. Clyde sends Bonnie a telegram to let her know he's safe, but his freedom doesn't last long. Following a string of burglaries and robberies across the state, the police catch up with him. This time he won't be so lucky. The judge wants to make an example. For the numerous offenses Clyde is found guilty of, he is sentenced to 14 years labor. The second time that Clyde goes to jail is the real deal. And he gets taken on this infamous paddy wagon, basically, up to Huntsville, the main prison. And in Huntsville, he's processed. You were marched through town, chained up like oxen. There's crowds in Huntsville for whom this is their entertainment, watching the prisoners taken off the bus. And there's three gates into Huntsville. And you go through the first one, you hear it clang behind you. And that's the sound that some of the prisoners of that time say, that's the sound where your heart really sinks, when you hear that big, heavy gate shut behind you. Unfortunately, Clyde is not lucky enough to spend his time at Huntsville prison. It's bad enough, but Clyde finds out there are far worse places. Namely, the place he's now headed, East Ham Prison Farm in Houston County, Texas. So he's determined pretty rapidly by the medical people that he can go be farmed out to one of these, what they called prison farms, which were infamous. They were based basically on the old cotton plantations of the South. The workday was, they called it from sea to can't see, I think is what they called it. In other words, from the first light till dusk, you worked as hard as you could, and then you ran out and you ran back in. The work on the prison farm is backbreaking. The system in 1930s America is not designed to rehabilitate, but to punish. Even by the standards of the day, East Ham is harsh. For a young man like Clyde, the experience is devastating. Anyone who doesn't hoe the cotton long enough or fast enough might be made to stand on a barrel for hours until they fall off. Not running quickly enough to or from the barracks could earn you a spot on a high balance beam 
sitting until you drop. Inmates are hung by limbs from windows and ceilings. But if the labor, punishments, and brutal guards aren't bad enough, the nightmare doesn't end when the sun goes down. These barracks where the prisoners lived were overseen by so-called trustees who were prisoners themselves, but who had no hope of parole and no hope of ever getting out and were therefore empowered to enforce the rules. These were by nature, you know, the meanest, toughest and prisoners with the least to lose. And they were incredibly violent and sexual predators in some cases. Clyde never really spoke of it, but there's several credible indications from people who knew Clyde well that he himself was in fact the victim of being raped more than once by a particular prisoner. Clyde is close to breaking point, but rather than turn inward, he eventually bites back. One evening, Clyde smuggles a pipe wrench into the restrooms. There, he lures his tormentor and unleashes his fury. Clyde smashes him over the head, killing him. Another trustee, this one Clyde's friend, then comes in and stabs the man. As Clyde flees, his accomplice takes the rap. Confessing to the murder of a fellow inmate makes no difference to his sentence. It's a twisted act of kindness that Clyde won't forget, and one which will fuel his later actions. It's also Clyde's first murder, but it won't be his last by any stretch. Life in prison may have improved to some degree, but it's still unbearable. It has already hardened the young man, but it has also made him desperate. It is January, 1932. It's a cold morning, cutting through the prison overalls of the men in the fields. Convict work crews are clearing brush piles in preparation for spring planting, while others chop wood for the prison camp stoves. A young man shivers, pulling his jacket tighter as he walks towards the edge of the field. His diminutive size makes him look too young to be surrounded by the most dangerous and hardened cons in Texas. Clyde claps his hands together and watches the men carefully. Nearby is the shotgun ring, a group of guards overseeing the work gang. Their attention is elsewhere as they laugh and drag on their cigarettes. Patrolling on horseback at the edge of the field is the long-arm man, a guard on horseback, rifle always cradled in his arms. His job is to take down any convict who gets past the shotgun ring. But escape is not on Clyde's mind today. As the long-armed man turns away, Clyde nods at a fellow inmate nearby. The man is huge, making the ax in his arms look small. He nods back, glances at the guards, then shuffles closer. Clyde bends over to pick up a stick, wincing at his aching muscles. Despite having youth on his side, like every other man here, the 23-year-old has been ground down by endless manual labor. If he doesn't do something drastic, he faces the prospect of 12 more years of this torment. With one last look at the guards and the other inmates, Clyde rests one boot 
on a thick plank of wood and clamps the stick between his teeth. The other inmate steps closer. He looks into Clyde's eyes, sees the fire and determination burning inside. In one fluid movement, the inmate swings the axe over his head, bringing it down with a solid thunk straight into Clyde's boot. Clyde bites down hard, snapping the stick, groaning, but he dare not scream. The man drops the axe and rushes away to join the others. Clyde can't hold it in anymore. He shouts in pain, dropping to the ground, clutching his boot. Blood flows runs between his fingers, dripping to the cracked dirt in wet splodges that pool beneath him. He hears distant shouts, feels the thunder of boots through the earth. But when the guards arrive, looking down at the injured Clyde, he is smiling through the pain. East Ham Prison Farm is nicknamed the Bloody Ham, thanks to the high rate of self-mutilation among convicts. It was so brutal that it was not uncommon for prisoners to mutilate themselves. They would cut off their toes, they would slice their Achilles heels. No doubt, had the conditions not been that brutal, he wouldn't have cut off his toe. But it's evidence of exactly how brutal these prisons were. And Clyde was not alone doing this. Many, many prisoners did this. It's a grim irony then that Clyde needn't have resorted to such drastic measures. Unbeknownst to Clyde, his mother had been long petitioning for his release. Just six days after chopping off his toes, Clyde leaves East Ham prison. But the boy who nervously walked into the prison two years ago is not the same angry man who limps out. Clyde has been worked to near death, brutally beaten and raped over a long period of time. He's even killed a man. A fellow inmate and gang member later says he watched him change from a schoolboy into a rattlesnake. His sister will later remark, something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. As he limps through the front gate and takes his first breath of free air, Clyde makes two promises to himself. First, he swears that he will die before setting foot in prison again. Secondly, he'll get payback on the prison system that treated him so badly. Not long after his release, Clyde hooks back up with Bonnie and takes a couple of jobs. But he knows he can't go straight if he's going to realize his ambition of taking revenge on the prison. When he loses yet another job, thanks to police harassing him at work, it's the final straw. Clyde tells his family he'll never work an honest job again. Along with a couple of buddies, he starts with a few holdups. Just small town stores and gas stations to get enough traveling money to plan a bank job. Bonnie tells her mother she's landed a job selling cosmetics and is moving to Houston. Her mother is pleased. She's never been happy about Bonnie's association with Clyde. Sadly for Emma Parker, her daughter is really pitching up 
to roll with Clyde and his new gang. Soon after, with the ink still wet on Clyde's release papers, he and two buddies attempt to rob a hardware store. Bonnie keeps lookout in the car outside. A night watchman alerts police, and after a brief shootout, the gang flee. A flash storm turns the road to mud, and when the cars bog down, the four young criminals are forced to escape across nearby fields. Clyde escapes, but Bonnie is not so lucky. In his early career and in his first stint in jail, there's a little bit of the gang that can't shoot straight quality of it all. He gets better, but at the beginning, they're kind of like dopey mistakes. And anyway, they're very quickly surrounded. They're stuck in this situation and they need a car and Clyde's a great car thief. And he says, I'll go get a car. But whether he went to get a car or not, the upshot is he left Bonnie. He escapes the whole thing entirely. And Bonnie ends up going to this little one room jail for several weeks. Thankfully, Bonnie doesn't wind up doing hard labor like Clyde. She tells her captors she was kidnapped and forced along with the gang. Texas juries are notoriously lenient on women, and Bonnie has no previous convictions. She's not even known to the cops. Now, all she has to do is keep quiet and bide her time. Whereas Clyde's prison experience was in a dark barrack with hundreds and hundreds of hardened criminals, Bonnie was probably the only prisoner in this town. I believe she also had a reasonably good relationship with the woman who kind of oversaw her stay there. On sunny days, she's allowed to sit outside on the lawn and given stationery to write her poetry. The longest is The Story of Suicide Sal, a poem about a country gal who falls for a criminal. I left my old home for the city to play in its mad, dizzy world, not knowing how little of pity it holds for a country girl. The doomed lovers become desperados, driven into criminality by events outside their control. This poem and others will soon be published for the whole country to read. Her heartfelt yet foreboding words will propel the duo to infamy and help cement their legacy, though perhaps not in the way she thinks. At least at this early point in their partnership, it's possible Bonnie still hopes for a happy ending for the two of them, that both she and her hot-headed lover are not yet beyond redemption. Nothing in the historical record or in kind of when you go and look at the place and the town and the circumstances to suggest that Bonnie's criminality was hardened by her jail experience. If anything, she may have come out vaguely thought she might be able to straighten up Clyde and go, you know, and live a better life. But Clyde isn't considering a straight life. While Bonnie's inside, he's still knocking over stores and trying to work up a plan for his prison raid. He's also learning from his mistakes. Earlier scrapes have convinced him that to stay one step ahead of the cops, he needs the fastest cars and the most firepower. From now on, he only steals the hottest cars and hones his skills behind the wheel. 
He's the getaway driver for a robbery in which a store owner is shot dead. Despite not pulling the trigger, Clyde is a wanted man. Heading out of state with a couple of buddies to cool off, he stops at an open-air dance. Yeah, we get the sense that he and his people, his buddies and Bonnie all went there just to let off some steam and have a good time. They didn't go there looking to kill anybody or looking to even rob anybody. They just kind of were young 20-somethings, you know, looking to have fun at a country dance. They're drinking moonshine in a parking lot when they catch the eye of the sheriff and his deputy. This being the tail end of prohibition, the officers decide to confront the young men. It's a grave mistake. Things go wrong, and the shooting starts, and the law officer is killed. From Clyde's point of view, it's an act of self-preservation, him against the world. He knows if caught, he'll go down for the rest of his life, and intends to make good on his vow never to return to prison. The outcome of that certainly is some kind of turning point, not the least because now he's killed law enforcement, and now law enforcement is, you know, really going to start looking for him. Back in Texas, Bonnie testifies that she'd been forced to come along as Clyde and his friends carried out the robbery back in March. It works a treat, and she's free and back home by the end of the day. She leaves jail clutching her volumes of handwritten poetry. It's not long before she's back in Clyde's passenger seat. Stealing cars and robbing small businesses, the gang climb wanted lists across the state. In October 1932, Clyde shoots and kills a grocery clerk in a rage. With descriptions circulated by police, they flee to Oklahoma, then Missouri, holding up more small-town stores for pocket change. It's November before they rob their first bank. With Bonnie on lookout, Clyde and his two friends enter, guns drawn. When the guards start firing, the gang escape with the loot. Unfortunately, Clyde's buddies take the money and disappear, leaving Bonnie and Clyde with a hot car and short on cash. They hastily rob another bank, only to find, once they're inside, that it's already gone bankrupt. By Christmas, the pair are starting to get desperate and return to Texas. There, they pick up an extra pair of hands to help in the form of W.D. Jones. 16-year-old William Daniel Jones has knocked around the same neighborhood as Bonnie and Clyde all his life. W.D. Jones ends up joining the group. He's kind of a pal of Clyde's little brother and emulates Clyde. And they've come back through Dallas to meet with the mother around Christmas, meet with Bonnie's mother and his parents. And W.D.'s hanging around with L.C., Clyde's little brother, and gets invited to just sort of like joins into the gang and joins into the fun and becomes a pretty significant member of the team. The trio roar out of town in a cloud of tire smoke, looking for their big score. The very next afternoon, they find a car with the keys inside. Clyde jumps in to start it. Unfortunately, the car's owner, a 27-year-old new father, comes running out. It's a fateful mistake, and after several gunshots, he lies bleeding to death on the street 
while the car screeches away. It's another cold-blooded murder, but it doesn't slow them down. It's late night on January 6th, 1933. County Avenue is a suburban street like any other in Southwest Dallas. The single-story wooden homes are shrouded in darkness, huddled under skeletal trees rustling in the cold breeze. A dark-colored Ford cruises along the street, slowing outside the home of Lily McBride, the younger sister of one of Clyde's friends currently serving time at East Ham Prison, Lily has been passing information between Clyde and her big brother. Clyde needs an insider as part of his grand revenge plan. The drapes in the house twitch. The car speeds up into the night. Less than a minute later, it's back. The drapes facing the road move again as the occupants check the street. Clyde slows the car, stopping with a soft squeal of brakes. Leaving the motor running, he jumps out and approaches the house. Always ready for trouble, he's clutching a sawn-off shotgun. He knocks on the door, expecting it to be answered by Lily. Clyde has no way of knowing he's walking into a trap, but not one set for him. Dallas police are staking out the house in case a different criminal shows up. Right now, all that stands between Clyde and a bunch of cops are the faded clapboard walls of the house. Clyde catches movement in the corner of his eye. He spins in time to see a shadow cross the window. Clyde knows something's off. Making a snap decision, he blasts the glass in an explosion that echoes through the sleeping neighborhood. The front door opens. Clyde turns, coming face to face with the deputy. He doesn't hesitate, shooting again. Close enough for the man's blood to spray back at him. Shouts spring up, Boots stamp the wooden floor as the cops react to the sudden violence. Clyde runs for the car. Splinters fly as lead smacks the thin wooden walls of the shack. W.D. Jones fires a shotgun through the open window of the car, while Bonnie leans out, emptying the magazine of a Colt pistol at the cops. The cops shoot back, but they're outgunned by the desperate trio. Clyde jumps behind the wheel, slamming the stick into gear. As the cops finally run out onto the street, he accelerates away in reverse. Bullets zip past the car. Bonnie slams a fresh magazine into the pistol and leans out the passenger window, squeezing the trigger rapidly. Clyde presses the clutch and turns the wheel, tapping the brakes. The car spins through 180 degrees with a screech of protest from the tires. He slips the gear stick into first and dumps the clutch, foot to the floor. The tires scream again as the Ford roars into the night. Bonnie and Clyde may not yet be household names, 
but the cops are certainly beginning to sit up and take notice. They lie low, zigzagging through Arkansas and back into Oklahoma. It doesn't work for long, and three weeks after the shootout, they abduct a highway patrol officer. This time the encounter is bloodless, but it doesn't do them any favors. They spend the next couple of months cruising through the Midwest in a succession of stolen cars, abandoned by the side of the road when they get too hot to handle. They basically are driving around in circles. Their strategy was to change cars every two or three days, so they kept it going. But it doesn't sound remotely romantic, the lifestyle. You know, they're not living it up on their stolen money. Clyde usually drives while Bonnie navigates. W.D. finds a role as the group's photographer. Every time they stop, he snaps pictures, staged with their vast array of weaponry on show. Bonnie and Clyde act playfully in the photographs, kissing, holding guns on each other, leaning on their stolen cars. It's all a game, a romantic adventure. But that adventure is about to take a dramatic turn. At the end of March 1933, Buck, Clyde's beloved older brother, is released from jail. Clyde talks Buck into coming out to stay with them for a while, hoping he can get his brother to join in their crime spree. But Buck has other ideas. His wife, Blanche, has persuaded him to go straight. And now, he hopes he can convince Bonnie and Clyde to do the same. The gang rent an apartment in Joplin, Missouri to rest up. It's supposed to be kind of a vacation and they get into a little, sort of a little upstairs apartment on a pretty suburban seeming street. The place is still there. Joplin is strategically located at the crossroads of four states. Easy to hop over state lines is required. It's the perfect spot to lie low. That is until two highway patrol cars pull up outside. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night, they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-tat-tat. Next time on Real Outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde may think they're lying low in their safe house, but when the cops show up, the guns start blazing as the gang shoot their way to infamy. What is found in the aftermath will splash their faces onto newspapers across the country. As the heat turns up, it's an all-out war between the cops and the outlaws. Debilitating injuries, high-octane pursuits, and machine gun shootouts will mean the end of the road for some of the gang. But will Bonnie and Clyde achieve their goal of a raid on East Ham Prison Farm? That's next time on Real Outlaws. <laughs> <laughs>